word Christian is found only three times in the New Testament. And each time it is a mark of identification. Christians have lost their identity today because they've lost their identification. In Acts 11.26, we read that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. A Christian is a Christian. He's somebody in whom Christ lives. So, first of all, he's identified with a person. In Acts 26.28, Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? A Christian is identified with a persuasion. He's persuaded that God is able to keep that which he's committed unto him against that day. He is persuaded that nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ. And knowing the terror of the Lord, he persuades me. He's a persuader because he's been persuaded. In 1 Peter 4.16 we read, Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. A Christian is identified with the persecution. The Bible says all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It doesn't say some or most, it says all. Now let me ask you, have you ever suffered any persecution as a Christian? says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We sing to the old rugged cross, I'll ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Now, how much of that have you ever borne? What is it? What is the reproach of the cross? It's not just ordinary trouble because everybody has trouble. Some people, when they have a headache, they think they're bearing their cross. Well, that's not your cross. You can kill that with an aspirin tablet. What is the cross of Christ? The reproach of the cross is the trouble that you have that you wouldn't have if you hadn't been a Christian. How much trouble have you ever had that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't been a Christian? Persecution, reproach, scorn. So a Christian is identified with a person, a persuasion, and a persecution. That's the way to identify them. Some time ago, a little boy asked his father, what is a Christian? His father told him, according to the Bible, just what a Christian is. And the little fellow asked, have I ever seen a Christian? I don't blame him. Sometimes I think the traveler's been lost in the baggage. I think we've become so occupied with the paraphernalia that we've failed to identify the Christian himself. I read of a housewife who uh, heard a knock at the door, and a stranger was standing there, and he asked her ever so abruptly, do you know Jesus Christ? And she didn't know what to say, and stood there and stared at him, and finally closed the door in his face. When her husband came home that night, she told him what had happened, and he said, well, why didn't you tell him that you're a teacher of the ladies' Bible class? president of the Women's Missionary Society. She said, that's not what he asked me. He asked me, do you know Jesus Christ? 
You can be a lot of things and not know Jesus Christ. A Bible Christian is one who knows Jesus as a personal Savior and is living by faith in and in fellowship with him. For one thing, he saved. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily. Such as were being saved. doesn't say all that were sincere or sanctimonious. Salvation is a fourfold experience. There must be conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. There must be the general conviction that all have sinned and the personal conviction that I have sinned, that I have broken God's law and that I am under condemnation and the wrath of God abides on me. You don't hear much these days about the sinfulness of the human heart. That's not because we have any less of it. I heard one old preacher had given a great message on the depravity of the human heart. Somebody came up after the service and said, I just can't swallow this depravity of the human heart you've been preaching about. The old preacher said, you don't have to swallow it. It's already in you. And so I'd say tonight, you don't have to swallow it. You've got it. It's there. Then there must be repentance toward God, which means turning with a broken and contrite heart from sin and self to the Savior. Paul preached repentance and faith, both. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Some people ask which comes first, repentance or faith. Spurgeon used to say that would be like saying when John Smith walks in the door, who came in first, John or Smith? They accompany each other. Then there must be faith in Jesus Christ, simple faith that receives him into the heart as the Son of God made sin for us who bear our sins in his own body, and by whose blood we're cleansed from sin, and through faith in whom we're given power to become the sons of God. Whitfield, the great preacher, was asked, Why do you preach so much on ye must be born again? And he answered, Because ye must be born again. I was out in the state of Iowa many years ago and meeting out in the farm home one day, and a little girl was singing some choruses for us. And she undertook to sing the one God has blotted them out. She couldn't quite pronounce blotted, but what she sang was good theology. God has blooded them out. And that's what he's done with the blood of his son. Then, if we've been convicted and if we've repented and if we've believed, there must be confession. With the mouth before men, the outward experience, the outward expression of an inward experience by which the redeemed of the Lord say so. Not too many silent Christians today. They're like Arctic rivers. They're frozen at the mouth. The Bible says, with the heart believeth, with the mouth confession's made. Some people say, well, my grandmother was a good Christian. She never did say anything about it publicly. It's not a matter how good your grandmother is. Bible says, with the mouth, confession. Now, you see, if it takes these four things, that's miles away from just signing a card and joining a church. The greatest experience on earth, when darkness turns to day and bondage to freedom. And the angels are set singing because the sinners come home. Then a Christian is not only saved, he ought to be sure. We've got too many people who don't know. Every born-again, blood-washed believer has no business going through this world an animated question mark up one day and down the next, never able to stand at any time or place with the full assurance of salvation.
For the word of God says we can know whom we believe, we know we have eternal life, we know he abides in us by the Spirit, we know we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. There are certain marks of identification in the Bible for a Christian. He's a new creature. He does not commit sin, that is to say, he does not make sinning his practice. When you see a man that practices sin, he's never been saved. If he makes sinning his practice, he may fall into sin, he may be overtaken by a fault. But a farmer's a man who farms, and a sinner's a man who sins. That's his business. When a man makes sinning his business, he's a sinner. Christian does righteousness. He overcomes the world. There are two ways of proving you've been born again. Two ways of proving you're born the first time. You could produce a birth certificate. But the very fact that you're here tonight is evidence that you've been born. Well, you could get up and give your testimony and tell us when you were saved, and that's one way. But the fact that you're living a Christian life, if you are, that's evidence. And in this day of human question marks, we need a lot of living exclamation points who've got the kinks taken out of them and who know that they know that they're saved because God said so and God saying so makes it so. Then every Christian ought to be sound. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the early Christians. You've come to a time when some people say it doesn't matter much what you believe, as long as everybody's in good humor. You've come to a day of trumpets with an uncertain sound, and the less a preacher's sure of, the more sense some people think he has. I remember being in a conference years ago in Kentucky, and Dr. George Ragland the First Church Lexington was telling us about a rather illiterate old lady out in the country, there somewhere, who had a habit of using the expression, near nothing. Instead of saying, not anything, she always said, near nothing. One Sunday they had a modernistic preacher there, and he preached a little lavender and rosewater sermonette that started nowhere and ended in the same place. And after it was over, she came down and shook hands with him said, Sure did enjoy your sermon. It didn't have no doctrine in it, nor nothing. Well, now when a sermon doesn't have doctrine, it hasn't got anything in it. And we're paying for this today, and folks that are on milk when they ought to be on meat. I thank God that the blood makes safe and the word makes sure. And as we continue in the apostles' doctrine, we're sound and steadfast and unmovable. I believe in being dogmatic about what you believe. Not bulldogmatic, but dogmatic. When I get sick and call a doctor, I want him to tell me what's the matter with me. I want him to be dogmatic. I don't want him to say, well, it could be this, it might be that, and I'll give you these pills. If they don't kill you, we'll try something else. I want him to be dogmatic. And when I go to the drugstore to get this prescription pill, I want the pharmacist to be dogmatic. I don't want him to say, well, I'm tired of these old formulas. We're going to try a new one. <laughs> going to put in five times more strychnine than it calls for this time. Then you got a funeral. When I get on the train, what few of them left, or get on a plane, I don't want that engineer or that pilot to throw away his instructions. I want him to be dogmatic. I want him to know where he's going and head that way. When I go to church, I don't want a preacher to stand up and say, you must repent, as it were, and believe in a measure, or be damned to some extent. I want him to be dogmatic. And then a Christian ought to be surrendered. 
Romans 6, 13, yield yourselves to God. Abraham is the Bible example of the walk of faith. One day God said to Abraham, I want you to give up Ishmael. Ishmael was the worst thing in Abraham's life, born out of the will of God, born of the will of the flesh. God took Ishmael and he never did come back. Then God said, I want Isaac. Isaac was the best thing in Abraham's life, born in the will of God, born of faith. God took Isaac, but he gave him back. God wants the Ishmaels in your life, the bad things, that he may take them away and that they may never come back. He wants the good things that he may give them back, sanctified and meet for the Master's use. All the trouble over in the Middle East tonight because Ishmael and Isaac started it a long time ago. All of this warfare through these years is still going on. It's because two half-brothers never could divide the land up right. It's still going on. You have war over there, and you will have it, because there's more to come. Because, uh, and we have to admit it, I'm sympathetic with the Arabs. Uh, when they suffer, I'm sympathetic with anybody suffers. But uh, Ishmael was a mistake to begin with. He was not in the will of God. So, we need today to proclaim a day of repentance in our churches for the songs we sing that we don't mean. Sometimes I think you can tell more lies behind a hymn book than almost any other way, and look so innocent doing it. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, for thee all the follies of sin I resign. Some of them got a wagon load of follies they never have given up and don't mean to. Have thine own way, hold o'er my being, absolute sway. I almost have chills when I see a congregation saying that. Absolute? That means 100%. Can't be any absoluter. Absolute. That's asking God to take over lock, stock, and barrel. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. How about that? The way some folks live, they just mean that the way it reads in the index. Take my life and let it be. Just lay it up on a shelf somewhere, Lord. Just let it be. That's not what it says. Don't stop in the middle of a verse or a sentence. Take my life and let it be consecrated. And if you meant that song, it'd take care of a lot of our problems about personal conduct. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. You couldn't sing that at the bridge club. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. That wouldn't work at a dance. Take my voice and let me sing only, always, for my king. That doesn't rhyme with rock and roll. Then I think we miss it worst of all on the next one. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite, but I withhold, and we hold on with all our might. The last thing the Lord ever gets from a lot of people. And the trouble lies in the next verse. Take my will and make it thine. There's where the battle's fought, not in your emotions. It's fault in your will, not in your feelings, but in your will. Whosoever will, let him come. You give God your will, and he'll get your hands and feet and voice and silver and gold. But too many people have never made up their minds to serve Jesus Christ. 
And then a Bible Christian is a separated Christian. Come out from among them and be you separate. The early Christians were peculiar people. Now they're a popular people. The devil tried to put the church out of business for persecution. Couldn't You can't kill a church by persecution. It'll grow on that. Every time you cut off one head, two more came up. It never has been more respectable to be a church member than it is tonight, and it never meant less. Because we've got too many church members who are trying to take spiritual sun baths when they need surgery. The Bible says, Abhor that which is evil. Hate it. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate him. And yet we flirt with evil and wink at the devil and play hands with iniquity and fear the Lord and serve our own gods. The Bible teaches separation from four things in the church. It says that churches and Christians ought to separate from the world. 2 Corinthians 6, James 4, 1 John 2. Ought to separate from immoral Christians, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 8. Ought to separate from false doctrine, 2 John verses 10 and 11. And ought to separate from d- church disturbers, Romans 16, 17. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not just preaching a don't religion. Some people are just as good as trying not to be bad can make them. The Pharisees were separated. They wouldn't even eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath. That's going strong. But they weren't surrendered to the law. However, I'm not just telling you to quit this and quit that. Old Sam Jones, the great evangelist, was a drunkard, and God saved him. He said, God said to me, Sam, you got your pockets full of dirt. Throw out the dirt, and I'll fill them with diamonds. Sam said, who wouldn't give up dirt for diamonds? Thomas A. Edison put old-fashioned lamps out of business. How did he do it? He didn't go around with a sledgehammer and smash all of them. He just invented the electric light. And when the electric light came along, out went lamps. When you get the light of God in your heart, out go all these things that don't belong. We're not going to have peace today by education and legislation. A spirit-filled American and a spirit-filled Russian will get along. A spirit-filled white man and a spirit-filled black man will get along. A spirit-filled husband and a spirit-filled wife will get along. A spirit-filled employer and a spirit-filled employee will get along. Spirit-filled neighbors will get along. Spirit-filled church members will get along. And so... The early Christians were spirit-filled. Three times in the New Testament, wine and the Holy Spirit are used in the same connection. John the Baptist was not to drink wine, but be filled with the Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Christians were accused of being drunk on new wine when they were filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Wine changes the face, and so does the Holy Spirit. Wine changes the talk, and so does the Holy Spirit. Wine changes the walk, and so does the Holy Spirit. A man drunk on wine creates a commotion, so does a man filled with the Spirit. And then, finally, every Christian ought to be a singing Christian, speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. The psalmist said, Thy statutes have been my song in the house of my pilgrimage. The trouble with Christianity today and with so much of the church is that we've got the words and we don't have the music. There is no melody to it. 
We have the mandates, but not the melody. The low book is not a song book. We've lost our song. I watch sometimes these postgraduate students on TV studying under the great masters, violin students under hyphens, cello students under casals, guitar students under Segovia. I don't mean, I, you understand, I mean the classic guitar, not the electric guitar. Let's get that straight. But these masters insist on perfection. And the other day I watched old Casals, and he's very old now. And this young man had played it perfectly, I thought. Casals said, the trouble with you is you've got the notes, but not the music. See what he meant? There's no life in it. There's no soul in it. You're just sawing along. You've got it perfect. Yes. I've heard people play the piano like that. Other instruments. Heard them sing like that. Every note was right. But it was hollow. Oh, how much of our worship today is like that. The performance. Everything's perfect. The ushers move like clockwork. Preacher doesn't miss a word. Music is flawless. But they've got the notes, but not the music. The statutes have not become songs. If we ever get the song back, why, something will happen. The hallelujahs have gone out of our churches. If amens were $10 a piece, they wouldn't be any scarcer than they are today. I heard of a fellow in a church that got excited and got a hold of something good in the sermon. You know, you generally can. One of our Methodist men in Atlanta, Pierce Harris, great character. He said, I never heard a sermon in my life I didn't get some good out of, but he said I've had some pretty close calls. <laughs> well, this fellow heard something pretty good from the sermon, said, Amen. I forgot him. Usher went to him and said, what's the matter? He said, I got religion. Usher said, get out of here. You didn't get it in here. <laughs> Oh, may the Lord deliver us from the coldness of today. I tell you, you ought to have a song. We've got a prejudice against emotion today. Well, what would anything be worth without emotion? What would patriotism be worth without emotion? During the First World War, Caruso, the great tenor, came to Atlanta put on a concert, and the last thing he sang was the Star Spangled Banner. When he hit the last note, he hit it an octave high. With that voice of his, probably no greater voice has ever been put in the throat of a human being. And it took 30 minutes to get that crowd quiet. Emotion. Now, what would love be worth without emotion? You married men, when you went to propose, you looked solemn enough tonight, but when you went then, did you go on a strictly business basis? Did you say, woman, I bring you two premises and a conclusion? First premise, marriage is a desirable institution. Second premise, I've been watching you and have decided you'd be a suitable companion. I now come to my conclusion. 
You know what she just said? She just said, get off the premise. She ought to say, oh, these folks that have two premises and a conclusion and don't have any love, no joy. Got their theology right and their chronology right and don't have any doctrine. I thank God I grew up in an old country church where your old-fashioned revivals used to get tangled up with your heartstrings and your tear glands. You could tell when you had a revival then. That was before some little professor got up in school and said as man increases intellectually, his emotional expression decreases, and then he goes to a football game. And so in a shower of rain and loses his hat and loses his head and loses his voice, yelling. Yell like a Comanche Indian at a football game, sit like a wooden Indian in church on Sunday morning. Charles G. Finney said you'll never have a revival till Mr. Amen and Mr. Wet Eyes are in the congregation. I believe that. It's more than emotion. But it's not less. When Jesus was in the temple, the little children were waving palm branches and folks were coming in lame and going out leaping and they came in blind and went out seeing and everybody was having a great time except the Pharisees over there in one corner. They didn't like it. They said, uh, too much uh, excitement. And they said to Jesus, hearest thou what these say? These kids are making too much racket. Jesus said, yes, and if you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou was perfect in praise. A revival is when childish folks become childlike, just that. Heartfelt religion, I used to hear about it. Don't hear that old word much anymore. I think of that man in a mining district. He was a Christian. Somebody went to look for him one day, and they said he's way down there in the, under the ground somewhere, but he'll be singing. He said, I went down and down and down, and I thought, if anybody's singing down here, they must be singing down in the gulf of dark despair, we wretched sinners lay. He said he wasn't singing that, he was singing that old song, Beulah Land. And he had just come to the line that says, here shines undimmed one blissful day, and all my night has passed away. Way down there in the dark, but he had a light on the inside. You better get a light on the inside, friend. The lights are all going out in this world. They're going out. You better get a light that'll stand the darkness. I want to ask you tonight, how many of these marks of a Bible Christian do you have? Saved, sure, sound, surrendered, separated, spirit-filled, singing. Have you got a song in your heart? 